Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This week's sponsor is Book of the Month Club again. Book of the Month Club is a service which I think is like the best thing ever, where you get to pick from five books each month uh, to get whichever one is your favorite. Book of the Month Club is offering Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books listeners an exclusive offer of signing up for just $5 for your first book. This is not to be missed. Bookofthemonthclub.com. Go check it out. And many of the books on this podcast have been Book of the Month Club picks. Uh, so go, just go buy them. Enter code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y, for this exclusive offer. I just wanted to take this time to wish all of you a very, very, very happy Thanksgiving. I am so thankful for all of you listeners out there. You have no idea how much you have made my life happy by helping me spread the word about these amazing authors and books and joining me in my book-loving life. (laughs) So thanks for taking the time on your walks while you're doing the dishes, while you're at the gym or wherever you're listening to me. Thank you for putting me in your ears and uh, listening to what I have to say. It really just warms my heart and feel free anytime to reach out to me. Let me know what you think of this podcast. Let me say something nice. I don't know, whatever. My email is zibby at zibbyowens.com, Z-I-B-B-Y at zibbyowens.com. And again, have a really amazing Thanksgiving and I hope these episodes uh, carry you through this this wonderful week. I'm here today with Bronson Van Wick, who's the author of Born to Party, Forced to Work, 21st Century Hospitality. He's the co-founder, along with his mother, of Van Wick and Van Wick, a well-known event planning firm that has designed events for three presidents of the United States, Beyonce, the Cooper Hewitt, and many other notables. A graduate of Yale University, he currently lives in New York City, although he's originally from Arkansas. I'm here today with Bronson Van Wick. Very exciting. He's the author of Born to Party, Forced to Work, which is right behind him. We are on Instagram Live also. So Instagram Live and doing the podcast. So a multimedia (laughs) Bronson Van Wick morning for everybody today. Full exposure. Full exposure. (laughs) Okay. So... Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Thank Books. Thank you for having me come. <laughs> I don't know if anybody has time to read books anymore. It's really yeah, it's hard. It's really not just moms. You have to make time you to do. read books. Do you make time to read books? I make time. When I, do you read? I read whenever I can. I probably have at any moment on any given day, I probably have five books open in different places in my apartment. It's a great source of kind of refreshment for me to just get outside of the present and where I am and and what I'm doing, or my day, my bills, my loans, my administration, all of it, and go into the world of a book. I read history. Oh. So I sort of like to get taken to other times and places. Do you end up remembering everything? Like, are you one of these people who can remember everything you read? I can't remember what I had for breakfast. Okay, this good. Morning. I feel better. Because I was going to say, if I read a history book, it'd be like in one ear, at the other at this point. I have to like take notes and like study my notes. And I think the thing I get out of the history books more than anything is just how much circumstances change, but the human condition and sort of who we are fundamentally doesn't change. And so we find ourselves doing the same things. I mean, you know, that adage of history repeats itself. History really does repeat itself. We have problems today that are the same problems, just in a slightly different form that people had in the past. And when we observe those and study them, I think we have a great opportunity to figure out, to see how other people solved the problems or didn't solve the problems and maybe learn from them. We could use, it's I wish, optimistic. I and wish we could, use a, we could <laughs> use a little more historical perspective in all parts of our 
national life today. <laughs> so you're a big reader, you love history, and now you've come out with your first book. My first after book. After 20 years in the event planning business. <laughs> and it is this book. Why this book? You could have written anything, right? So well, you've written a beautiful, gleaming, golden, born-to-party coffee table book slash manifesto on hospitality. I think, well, you got to write about something you know. And so this is something I think I know about. Somebody said to me the other day, you know, I've always thought, I remember when I was, when I decided to go out to LA to be an actor and my parents were sort of stunned into silence when I told them this and they're not very, they're not silent people, but they really, they really didn't have anything to say that night at dinner when I told them. And the next day I was, I came into my dad's office and he was on the phone with my godfather and the, the thing I heard him saying when I walked in the room is, but he went to Yale. <laughs> why, why is he going to go out to L.A. and throw it all away? And, you know, I, I had at that point worked as a photographer on a political campaign and for a newspaper. I'd done correspondence for Hillary Clinton in her office. I'd worked at the State Department in protocol. I'd spent a summer at a venture capital company. I'd worked on the farm for years. And I went out to L.A. and I was an actor. And, of course, that meant I really actually was a waiter. So I was waiting tables at this Indian restaurant called the Bombay Cafe at Pico and Bundy. It was in a second floor of a strip mall. As many good restaurants yeah, in L.A. You know, are, well, so. that's true. Yep. That's true. That is true. And I ended up, I did some set design. I was reading scripts. And I realized that comment of my dad's that, you know, I'd sort of had this training or this education, and it, it sort of dovetailed with feelings that I had of not knowing how to do anything or, or not being prepared for anything. And I started doing this, and I realized really quickly, actually, my entire life was training and education to do this. You learn protocol at state. I learned how to create a budget at the VC company where I worked. I learned about the importance of the visual when I was taking pictures. Set design, obviously, I mean, that's so related to what we're doing. You learn how to deal with guests if you're a waiter. You learn how to deal with clients if you're an actor. So everything had kind of sent me down this path of having not been able to find... I went through this extended process of elimination in which I've really can, felt like I had no marketable skills. <laughs> but I realized I had been developing the skills that were important for what I ended up doing. That was a really long answer. That's great. To, I love like, long answers. To a, to a not very complicated question. Well, and then growing up on the farm in Arkansas, we were 100 miles from Memphis. We were 100 miles from Little Rock. Our closest neighbors were three miles away, and those were my grandparents. <laughs> and so here we were, kind of in this very isolated rural place, which had great natural beauty, but no, there were no movie theaters or restaurants or museums or nightclubs or anything. But my family were, all of us were, well, I was a little kid, all of them, this sort of generation above us and the generation above them were really involved in the world. They traveled, they wanted to go places. I had an uncle who was a stunt pilot. I had another one who was Mr. Arkansas. I had an aunt <laughs> who was involved in all kinds of things involving getting dissidents out of Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union. There were artists. My dad was from New York. And so they were involved in a larger world or a world that was 
outside of the geography of where we were. And that world sometimes came to us. And so when people came, we had to entertain them because there was no other option. There was no other way to entertain them except what we created or what we gave them. We had a meal every day, and it was, you know, lunch or dinner, which we would call lunch, dinner, and we would call dinner, supper, where almost everyone in the family was together, and whoever had house guests or visitors, they all came. So every day there was basically an event, and that might be 20 people, it might be 30 people, it might have been 15 people, but it was a breaking bread together as a family, also with the participation of guests. So we were sort of constantly engaging in this exchange, which is, which is what hospitality really is. It's an exchange of kindness and love and making people feel comfortable. So why did I write the book? Um, <laughs> did I ask that? Why did you, you write did, you did. Why, why did, did you I write this why book? Why did you write this book? Um, I think what I realized is that there's a lot about hospitality that is completely transferable from one event to another, to another, to another. And whether we're talking about the opening of the St. Regis Hotel in Bal Harbor, or we're talking about the launch of a new shade of lipstick from Chanel, or whether we're talking about somebody's wedding, or whether we're talking about children who are giving a surprise 50th anniversary party for their parents. These are, they all come, it all comes back to this idea of hospitality. And as I kind of, I've always been curious about the the rituals of hospitality. And as you go back in history, and again, this is maybe where the nerdiness Yeah, now I see why this is in the book, but okay, go on. So, you know, as you go back in history, you see that every single culture on the planet, completely independently of each other, felt the need at some point in its development to call forth divinity in order to ratify or support or to condemn certain kinds of behavior that a functioning society needs to either have or or can't survive if they do have. So, you know, these are things like love and weddings and, you know, not killing each other. And, you know, and also these were, the divine was always, I think, used also to explain the things we didn't understand, life and death and the weather. But hospitality was so important because there was always a horizon and there was always something beyond the horizon. And as human beings, we want to know what's beyond the horizon. We want to go there. And if we're going to go there, we might encounter people (laughs) who are like us, but different from us. And they may be nice or they may be mean, but we have to figure out a way to initiate the contact and allow the contact and allow the interaction, let's say the exploration of what the, the relationship could possibly be, we have to figure out a way to do that in a sort of safe space. And the safe space is what hospitality creates. It, it's, it's a sort of ritualized safe zone where strangers get to interact and get to know each other, hopefully become friends. So, you know, you see this in with the ancient Greeks, and I talk about this in the book, obviously. The king of the gods, Zeus, was actually the god of hospitality also. And Hermes, who was another really important 
one of the 12 Olympians. He was a god of guests and travelers, the messenger god. And there's a great story, which I tell in my book, about Zeus and Hermes going down to a little village in what's now Turkey and disguising themselves as poor, sort of vagrant travelers, beggars on the road. And they go to a really prosperous town that is has rich merchants. And in those days, you could tell kind of the prosperity of a town if based on the if they had good walls. And they went to a town with really high walls. And nobody would take them in. And so, you know, they went from house to house asking for hospitality, a meal, a place to sleep. And all the doors were closed to them. So they finally wander to the edge of the town, and there's a hovel there with an old man and an old lady, Bacchus and Philemon, and a little farmyard, and, you know, a few sheep, and that's all these guys had. And they present themselves, and the couple immediately open the door and invite them in. And they come in and sit down. The woman bustles around and pours them wine, washes their hands for them, and they're sitting there drinking the wine, The husband goes outside, they have one goose, and he goes outside to slaughter their one goose to make a meal for these strangers. And it's a meal that will be better than any meal that couple has had together just for themselves in a long time. But the goose is fast and the old man is slow and the goose escapes from him and jumps into the lap of one of the gods where the goose becomes very calm this moment sort of is, is I think, probably surprising to the couple. But what is more surprising is they've been sitting there drinking wine and they look down and the glasses of wine are full again without anyone having poured the wine. That's the perfect party. It's the perfect party. That is, that is the perfect party. That is the perfect party. And, and Zeus says, why, have you, why are you honoring us this way? And the old man says, we're honoring you as guests. And when we honor guests, we honor the gods. And at that point, the gods throw off their disguise and they're revealed. And they say, you, of all the people in this town, you too are the only ones who have treated us with honor. What can we give you? The couple fall down on their knees and they say, we just want to be able to to honor you, continue to honor you. And we love each other so much, neither one of us wants to outlive the other. And so the gods destroy the town. The couple live a long, happy life in the, in the structure that the gods create for them. And when he starts to, to pass years and years later, he starts turning, he turns into an oak tree and she goes with him and turns into a linden tree and the branches intertwine. Aww. And so they get to spend eternity together as trees. That is the Greek, that is a Greek myth. The same story happens in almost every single culture. And, you know, the foundational myth of Christianity is a couple shows up in a town. They're there because they want to get counted in the Roman census. And all the doors are closed to them. She's pregnant, nowhere to stay. They end up staying in a manger. And Mary gives birth to the Son of God. And, And this is a story about hospitality. And you see the same story in the Old Testament with Lot and Sodom. You see it in Hindu tales. So my point is, <laughs> hospitality is 
divine. And we are touching divinity when we practice hospitality and when we do it right. I love that. It's like taking it up a notch. It's not just a dinner. You should always take it up a notch. Yes. <laughs> so what are some of your, your like- It's daytime. We can take it up. Maybe at <laughs> night you take it down, but in the day- What are a few, and this is like putting you on the spot a little bit, but as you produce, basically, you're like a pr- producer. These aren't just parties. You produce massive events and happenings, and yet you go down to- the tiniest detail to make them important. So for somebody at home who loves to entertain but doesn't have the means to hire a genius like you to help them with a party or wants to just like do it themselves and make an amazing event, how do they make it divine? How can you bring the divine into your own home to make a really special, memorable event? Well, I think that it really comes down to the intention and the things about hospitality that are actually free. And those have to do with care and thoughtfulness. You know, have you ever been on a date with someone and, you know, you kind of, they ask you to meet them, you go to meet them and they say, what do you want to do? And you're like, what do I want to do? You, you invited me. You, oh, well, you know, we can, we can do this or we can do that. It's sort of like, that's about as romantic as going to the dentist. (laughs) But if you go on a date with somebody and they say, you know, meet me here and you get there and you're at some great restaurant that you've never been to before and you you eat and but you know he says we have to eat fast because we're going somewhere after and then you go somewhere after and you're going to see some great show and you feel so appreciated and so loved because somebody else has anticipated you they they were thinking about you when you weren't even there that's a big compliment and i think that any host can do that i think the fundamentals are seeing to the comfort and well-being of your guests. This has to do with if they're hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Keep them dry, keep them warm. The rest is just semantics, right? So I think another important dynamic of that is not just people's physical well-being, but also their emotional and spiritual well-being. And that means making sure that they feel accepted and included and comfortable. And I talk a lot about this in the book. I mean, this, these are not, these, this is sort of common sense in a way. But, you know, when we have people in our care, we have this wonderful opportunity to allow them to forget about their problems and know that somebody else is solving the problems. And, you know, that's, you have a guest come and they, you know, they have certain interests. Think about another guest who you might have come who has the same interests or is curious about those interests. And those two people are going to, guess what? They're going to have a great conversation, probably. You can, I think the most important thing that a host can do on a practical level is be sure to plan ahead so that you can be present with your guests. And if that means getting a recipe from Epicurious to make a great punch that you can make that afternoon and put in the refrigerator and then serve so that you're not having to play bartender all night and not be able to hang out with your guests, then you do that. If it means cooking something that you can serve room temperature, so you're not having to leave the table five times during the course of a meal to go in the oven and try to get that souffle just right, you do that. I don't just is that start That's good. Answer? That's great. Does that start to answer yeah. the question? The, the most important thing I took away is, and the challenge I feel like I have when I have events is like you're managing so much in your head, being able to like, be really excited and talking and being not having to run around, like what you're saying, being present. Like you shouldn't have to be running around at all. 
Well, and remember that your presence is actually what you're giving the guests. The hospitality is is happening around them and it creates a stage or sets the environment for the for the interaction. But they're coming because they love you. They're coming because they want to see you. And they want to see you happy. And they don't want to see you pulling a Sylvia Plath and putting your head in the oven in the right. kitchen because, you know, somebody dropped a tray of glasses. Who cares? No, I feel that way when I go to people's houses. If they're all stressed out, it's like, ah. Uh, yes. Like, and I, you, I have enough like of imposing. my own stress. Yeah, you feel like, like you're sort of, oh, God, I'm, you know, I'll leave soon. Don't right. worry. You'll, you'll be, you never want a guest to feel that way. So how did you come up with this title? Born to party, forced to work. I mean, forced, really? I mean, Give me a little more background into this. Do you feel like you're a party boy who's now like a grown up? Do you feel like this is like, do you know, like, who's the book? Who are you thinking of when you came up with the title? Well, I, I, I hate to did say you it, come but up I, with the title? I, yeah, I did. I okay. came up with the title. I hate to say it, but I was really just thinking about myself. <laughs> there you go. All right. <laughs> Maybe just self absorbed. No, I was always made to work. And I had to mow lawns when I was a kid. I, you know, we would wash cars. And when I was 13, I actually had to work on the farm. And that meant working. That wasn't like setting up a lemonade stand. That was actually, I mean, there are probably laws against it. (laughs) There probably are. If there aren't, there should be. But at 13, I was, I got the lowliest job on the farm, which was pulling red rice out of rice fields. So, you know, you grow rice and the whole The whole point is to get a crop of white rice because that's what Uncle Ben's will buy. But naturally, in uh, a field of rice, you get some red. It's like a recessed gene, recessive gene, right? Mm -hmm. So, so there's no machine that can sort for that because they're all exactly the same size and shape. So, only people can do it, and it's it's the sucker (laughs) that has to do it. (laughs) So, if there's a group of people working on the farm. You know from the one who's pulling out red rice that, that they're the lowliest on the totem pole. So I did that for an entire summer. You're bent over. You're wearing work gloves. The blades of grass from the rice are so sharp that by the end of the day, you've ripped through a pair of gloves. You go through a pair every day. Another summer, I walked around on a farm and checked levees all summer and to make sure that water wasn't going through levees. And, you know, that sounds sort of bucolic in a way, but you're in hip boots, not because of the water, although there's a ton of water, obviously, but because there's so many water moccasins, which is a very aggressive, poisonous snake. And they love levees because they come up out of the water and they sunbathe. And so, you know, every day you'd have encounters with 12 or 15 snakes. I tell you about these stories because this was part of the sort of culture of my family, where we were always made to to be productive and work. When I went out to LA to be an actor, at a certain point, my dad said, this is for the birds, you're on your own, you gotta figure this out entirely. And so I was, I had to be productive and independent. So that's where the forced to work part comes from. I mean, I think I was, I would have loved to have been just a party boy. <laughs> I kind of was in college. You don't have to think about it so much in, in college, or I didn't, I was, I was able to be at college without having to work while I was there. And I went through this sort of, I think, trying to find myself in a way by exploring all aspects of social life. And I had a friend who gave me that great book, Edie, an American biography, which is, was Gene Stein and George Plimpton wrote about Edie Sedgwick, and, you know, who was doomed. And a friend gave it to me and said, you have to read this before you turn into this. And it was sort of a wake-up call. 
And then I got serious. One question about the background from your childhood that you put in the book and that we've been talking about. Do you feel like you would have been able to develop all these creative skills if you had had a different, like how much do you think your upbringing contributed to it? Because I wonder about kids now, right? Like let's say kids here in New York City and on the iPads and da da da. Like are they, they're not out picking rice from a field where their brain is allowed to really flourish. Wrong, yeah, wander. wander. We have all that time and freedom to really come up with stuff. Like do you feel like that made you a more creative person? Do you feel like a creative? I mean, I am assuming you're a creative person by the content of what you create, but. I've think of myself as a creative person. It's a process that I really enjoy. I think we were free to be creative, but we also kind of had to be creative Mm -hmm. because there were no other... You had to entertain yourself. Yeah, we had to entertain ourselves. And I had parents who, you know, if we were inside when the sun was up Mm -hmm. and we weren't reading a book, mom or dad was like, what are you doing in here? Get outside. Go figure, you know, go play. Go, go. And play meant, you know, building something or... (laughs) or destroying something, <laughs> or shooting something. And um, we, where we lived, we didn't actually have television. So there was one ABC affiliate that we could get kind of with a lot of snow and, and static um, local affiliate that was within range, but we were way too far outside of town to get cable. So we had this satellite dish that was a gigantic moment when we got the satellite dish, and we were so excited for it as kids, but it really was kind of, it was kind of a pain because we had to, the, where it was sighted, it was outside the house, obviously, and you had, but you had to go out and crank it to turn, to go from, you know, the MTV satellite to the CBS satellite to the, and you didn't know when you were out there cranking what the result was. So somebody had to be at the window shouting to you out there, oh, go back half a notch. So that was a lot of work to watch a TV show. So we didn't watch much TV. I worry about kids who are, you want them to be digitally proficient. You want them to exist in the world that they're going to have to function in. But I think that forcing kids through lack of stimulation, but provision of opportunity to be creative is really, really powerful and effective in terms of people being self-sufficient in their in their creative process. We weren't overstimulated, but we were very stimulated. It's hard to strike that balance. It's very hard. It's really hard. I have a lot of godchildren, and some are in New York City. And some of their parents didn't let them watch TV, didn't give them an iPad, didn't give them a cell phone until they're, you know, 12 or 13. And those are the ones who want to go to the science museum. Mm. And others, other kids who I know of, of friends, you know, kind of grew up with all that and, they don't really know how to interact. Great. <laughs> they need some more. Some I'm more not judging. Party planning. I'm no, not judging. I know. I I'm like, too late for my kids. I, I think it's, 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 we're all making choices. We're all busy. Right. I don't think there's any one right way. So we're almost out of time, but tell me, like, is there an event that you're longing still to produce or to have or something that, like, is in the back of your head that you've always wanted to do? Or now that the book is out, has have any new opportunities come about? Or is there just anything, like, what's next? Like, what do you, what's next that you want to accomplish? Well, I'm going to Miami tomorrow because we're working on the Super Bowl. Oh, wow. And so I'm excited about that. We're doing the NFL's party, and then the Dolphins are hosting the Super Bowl this year. So I don't they're not going to be in it. I think they're <laughs> zero games this year. I think they're 0-7. But they're giving up as the hosting 
team they're giving a party. So we're working on that. I'm doing some stuff during Art Basel. So I'm going down there tomorrow, and I'm looking forward to that. That's a great part about this job is traveling and getting getting to go places. We've got, oh, I'm going to Aspen, which I can't wait for, in December because we're doing a, a, a polo tournament in snow. Wow. Which I think will be really fun. I've never done that before. We're going to spend Thanksgiving in London, my family. I'm looking forward to that. And what are you looking forward to? What am I looking forward to? I don't know. Having time to read not on a schedule? <laughs> <laughs> you need a vacation too, it sounds like. I want to give, a, I want to give an Egypt party, an Ooh, ancient fun. Egypt yeah. party, a Nile kind of. And, you know, it could happen in Egypt, but given what's going on there right now, more likely it won't. I've been dying to give that party. Okay. And people come as pharaohs and gods, and you know, that's the one that's racing around in my head right now. I should have answered differently. What I am looking forward to is I'm having a holiday book fair, which I had last year also, and I sell all the books of the people who have been on my podcast. Oh, that's fantastic. And I invite everybody, and they meet the authors, and they yeah. meet each other. And that's great. So I am yeah. looking forward to that. But thank you for when is That's in December. Yes, yeah. December 2nd. Yeah. So you should come. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have thank any you. advice to aspiring authors having completed this task? Somebody said to me, write the first sentence and write the last sentence. Mm. And that helps a lot. I found that very hard, actually. The first sentence was impossible for me, but I could write the last sentence. So I started there. And then I tried to write the first sentence of the last chapter. So I did that. And then I started doing that chapter by chapter, and I created this kind of outline of the chapters, and I sort of worked from there. Hmm. Oh, and actually, I couldn't write any of it. I was... I was, for a year, I sat there really not able to write the book. And then I just got to, I started recording myself talking. Hmm. You can tell I like to talk <laughs> by the length of my answers to your questions. That's great. But I, I recorded 30 hours of talking, and I just would do it kind of every day, not even in a regimented way, but 10 minutes here, I was in a cab. I'd, and we transcribed everything, and I had the book, actually. Huh. And it took me four months to take all that and then cut and paste it, and go through and make the sentences sound so when my grandmother reads them, <laughs> she doesn't regret that she sent me to college, but make the English proper and everything. But I, I did it orally. Excellent. Well, thank you for thank coming you. on Mom's No Time to Read Books. Thanks thank for you. sharing your experience and the beautiful images and, and the stories in the book. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, the award-winning podcast. This episode has been sponsored by Book of the Month Club, bookofthemonthclub.com. Enter code Zibby to get your first book for just $5. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at Zibby at ZibbyOwens.com. 